It all started several years ago. I was researching a book, a comedy set in 1930s Germany, and I wanted to know a bit more about the so-called girl kultur, or Germany's version of the it-girl phenomenon. I came across a film I'd never heard of before. It was called Mädchen in Uniform, or Girls in Uniform. Oh yeah, I thought, here we go. The title just drew me in for a whole mix of reasons. As luck would have it, some nice person had put the whole movie on YouTube. I didn't read anything about it. I knew nothing of its history or reputation. I just watched it. And I fell in love. From the moment those opening titles came up and the whimsical, militaristic music kicked in, I was lost. It was one of those deeply personal, transformative moments that you get very rarely, usually with books, I think. I found it perfect, a revelation. Everything about it works beautifully, from the haunting setting of a grim boarding school for girls to the universally brilliant performances. And hang on, did I see that correctly? Right in the middle, after an unbearable build-up of tension, there's a kiss. A totally shocking and yet rather beautiful kiss on the lips between a teacher and her pupil. Whoa. Really? It was made in 1931. What did the audience make of that? How was this astonishing film received? How come it had travelled so very well over 80 years? And so the obsession began. I looked into the people behind the making of Merchant in Uniform and I found the beginnings of a story even more gripping and moving than the film I'd just watched. I found love, ambition, money, poverty, war, immense success crippling failure, and even murder. This was a film written by a woman, directed by a woman, and with a cast made up entirely of women. It was an unremitting success. Trawling through newspapers from the time, I couldn't find a single bad review. They were all glowing. And I even found, to my amusement, that amateur dramatic companies up and down Great Britain were putting on their own productions of the stage version of the film, dressing up like their beloved German schoolgirls, and delivering that illicit kiss that turns the story on its head. I found pupils reciting its lines at music festivals from Hull to Leamington Spa, and the ladies of the Bath Sir Optimist Club reading out and discussing passages from the text. When that film came out, we wanted to dress like them, talk like them, and even kiss like them. This was more than a movie. It was a cult on international levels. And I think probably one of the first cult movies in cinema history. As the information available to me dwindled, I went to libraries and archives to get hold of original documents, and I travelled to Frankfurt to interview the two film academics who in the 1980s rediscovered the movie and went on to rehabilitate it and bring it to a new audience. They also found its star, the last leading contributor still alive, living in an East German workers' tenement, virtually forgotten, and dreaming of the past. Mädchen in Uniform is still a cult movie, although its audience is more select and the film has become a much-loved gay coming-out parable. What might surprise us now is that it had such a wide, if you like, heterosexual appeal in its day. How come? How was society different then? Are we guilty of thinking there could be no nuanced or sophisticated take on sexual politics before us? Was the film even viewed in the way we view it, given that its main story was about the repression of a generation of girls to fit a Prussian ideal of womanhood. 
do you know what? It's just a great movie. And the making of it is a great story. And the people who made it are complex, fascinating individuals who have become so important to me. Krista, the sculptor Baroness, who wrote the original play to exorcise the ghosts of her traumatic childhood. Leontine, the proud classical actress facing middle-aged obscurity who agreed to direct a movie that she assumed was going nowhere. And Hertha, the feisty star who told Goebbels to get lost when he offered her a role in Germany's newly politicised film industry. This is the story of an extraordinary group of women who made an extraordinary film at an extraordinary time. On the way, we'll look at all sorts of contributing factors, from sexual politics to a turbulent Europe and beyond, from a literary fixation on schoolgirls to a cinematic worship of dangerous women. We'll get inside the process of film production and we'll see how the disparate experiences of a group of people can seep through the mechanics of filmmaking to create a very particular feel and resonance. My name is Bibi Berkey and I'm a writer and journalist and this is my story of The Kiss and the women who made a movie masterpiece. Just before we look at the plot of Mädchen in Uniform, can I quickly digress and talk about another film, just to help me make a point? This film is much better known than Mädchen, in fact, extremely well known and very celebrated. It's The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, that strange, unique, unsettling masterpiece. And the story of its making is just as strange and unsettling. The screenplay was written by two young men, one a Czech poet, the other an Austrian sometime actor. They had survived the First World War and had met in Berlin, discovering that they shared similar views on pacifism and the dangers of absolute authority. Both young men fancied having a go at writing for films, this new world full of so much creative promise. When it came to thinking of a story, each of them brought a chilling former experience to the table. The Czech, Hans Janowitz, recalled a moment in 1913 when he'd followed the enticing laugh of an unseen girl while strolling through a fairground in Hamburg. Finding himself at the edge of the fair among bushes, he suddenly came across the shadowy figure of a man who disappeared into the night. The following day, he read about the brutal murder of a girl in exactly the same spot and at the very time he'd been there. What's more, attending her funeral he believed he saw the man who had stolen past him in the darkness that night. Karl Mayer's contribution was not so much a single event as the painful memory of being on the receiving end of several examinations of his mental health by a high-ranking military psychiatrist during the war. The two young men, in constant discussion on how they could work their experiences into a screenplay, found the answer during a trip to a sideshow at a Berlin fair one night where a strong man, in an apparent unconscious stupor, not only achieved miracles of strength, but also predicted the future for members of the audience. Those of you familiar with Das Kabinett des Dr Caligari, the unforgettable 1920 horror film, will recognise all the elements of the plot right there. A dizzyingly ramshackle fairground, the somnambulist fortune-teller who carries away his victims, the senseless murders, the evil and controlling psychiatrist. 
We know how this fascinating process came about because of one man, Siegfried Krakauer. He was a film theorist who wrote a landmark book about German cinema called From Caligari to Hitler. His aim with this extraordinary study was to find connections between a nation's collective mentality and its cinematic output. Writing soon after the Second World War, he looked back on a film tradition of both startling originality as well as much more banal moments. He felt that Caligari was a good starting place for getting to the nub of what he referred to as the recent German sickness. For Krakauer, Caligari and the other films of the Weimar period showed the soul at work, and he was lucky and astute enough to get a first-hand account of how it was made from one of its creators, the poet Janowitz. So why bring it up? On the face of it, Caligari has next to nothing in common with Mädchen in Uniform, either stylistically or in content, and they were made 11 years apart. I mention it because my big question is whether you can, as it were, psychoanalyse a film in the way Krakauer does with Caligari. Films are nearly always collaborative efforts and yoked to commercial priorities. Can they really divulge so much, not only of an individual psyche, but also a national one? Can the deeply felt personal experiences and views of two young men not only transcend business and practice, but also influence the feel of a film? Is it really possible to hear something through all those layers? The background story to the making of a movie can be engrossing. The money, the studio politics, the temperamental cast. Just look at the legend that's built up around the making of the 1963 Hollywood epic Cleopatra. It's possibly more exciting than the film itself. But what about the less tangible elements that go into their creation? The personal stories, the childhood experiences, the relationships. Can the dreams, traumas and inspirations of early youth seep through all those mechanics and make themselves felt in a group project like a movie? Well, I think they can. And I think Merchant is a particularly good example. I think that delving into the lives of the women who made the film is fascinating and so rewarding because it explains so much about the film. It's such a personal story and yet it's so political too. And by the way, Krakauer really rated it as well. So let's get down to it. Let's watch it. just finished watching it again. I've got it on DVD now. It wasn't that easy to find, but there's an American site called Rare Films and More, which is a joy and I recommend. Anyway, let me tell you the story. Apologies if you already know it. So, we start off hearing a bugle. We're entering a military world. We see statues of warriors, fighting men, ancient heroes, Prussia's famous leader, Frederick the Great. We know we're in an auspicious place. Suddenly, we cut to a crocodile of schoolgirls marching. The theme music is all whimsical now. They're teenagers and all wearing the same rather prisoner-like striped shift dresses. March, 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 not a foot out of step. In they go to school and the story begins. A young girl arrives at the school with her aunt. She's very pretty, very shy and clearly dominated by the older woman. Her name is Manuela von Meinhardis and she comes from a family with a good name and good connections 
but no money. That's why she's at this school. It's for the aristocracy and the officer class, for those who uphold the Prussian principles, and we'll go into that a bit later. The aunt explains to the deputy headmistress that the girl's mother died recently. Manuela can't help herself and starts to cry. Come on, says her aunt. Officers' daughters don't cry. And so this emotionally rather brittle young girl is left in the care of this forbidding authoritarian place. But there's a good side. The other girls. And to be honest, this is where I lost my heart when I first saw the film. The schoolgirls are a delight. Foremost among them, the sparky Ilza. When Manuela meets them for the first time on the central staircase, then they tell her all about their favourite teacher, Fräulein von Bernburg. Everyone's got a crush on her. To be in von Bernburg's dormitory is the high point of a girl's time at the school, and Manuela is going to be in that very dorm. Just a quick word about the staircase. It's unquestionably the central image of the film. Dark, silent, quite dangerous looking. This is the setting for a lot of the action. It's on this staircase where Manuela first bumps into von Bernburg. It's a mesmerising moment. We can see why the girls are so obsessed with this woman, with her almost hypnotic stare and her gently authoritarian manner. Manuela is rooted to the spot at this first meeting. Von Bernburg lays down the rules straight away and she looks deeply into the child's eyes and grasps her hands. She wants absolute obedience from the girl. General hijinks from the schoolgirls follow. In their common room, they're full of life and ebullience, having fun unpacking Manuela's trunk for her. It's all exactly as you'd expect from corralled teenage girls. A lot of poring over pictures of male film stars and dreaming of freedom. I love that aspect of their depiction, that these young girls are always teetering on the edge of subordination. Let's paint a picture of the headmistress now. She's fabulously well played. She's all you want from a grand dame. She's trussed up in a high-necked old-fashioned gown and moves through the school with a fierce-looking walking stick. Her views are uncompromising. She can't be questioned. She can't be undermined. She believes wholeheartedly in the Prussian way, in a rigid social structure with militarism at its heart. The girls at her school are destined to be the wives of soldiers, but more importantly, the mothers of soldiers. Through discipline and hunger, we shall be great again, she says. And as she says it, we cut away to girls who are daydreaming of decent meals back home. This is the regimented world that Manuela has entered. On the one hand, semi-starvation and ultra-discipline. On the other, youthful energy and latent rebellion. We are coming up to a pivotal scene. It begins with the girls getting ready for bed. They're all in their underwear, which by modern standards is pretty voluminous. We're presented with a montage of girls washing their hair, massaging their legs, brushing their teeth, all in a state of happy mayhem. Fräulein von Bernburg, remember her, our beautiful disciplinarian, cuts the frivolity short and everyone has to get into bed. Poor Manuela is very upset about her mother and the teacher comes over to comfort her. You'll like it here eventually, she promises. She's taking on the role of mother, and Manuela listens with adoration in her eyes. Here we go. Fräulein von Bernburg dims the lights and asks the girls if they're all ready. A tremor of excitement goes around the room. The girls all kneel up at the foot of their beds, 
and the teacher makes her way along the rows, depositing a kiss on each forehead. With each kiss, she gently pushes the child backwards to land on her bed, kiss after kiss. It's a magical moment. And finally, von Bernborg reaches Manuela, and the girl flings her arms around the teacher's neck. Von Bernborg takes the girl's face in her hands and plants a very sensitive and feeling kiss straight on Manuela's lips. It's a did-I-just-see-that-right moment. Beautiful, tender, and yes, definitely erotic. We're going to discuss that kiss at length later on. Now is not the time. All we need to know is that Manuela lies down with a huge smile on her face, elated. I don't really want to move on from that scene, but we have to. At a staff meeting, the head takes the teachers through their paces and makes it clear that best practice is keeping your emotional distance from pupils. Affection, she says, has no place in a school. Manuela is beyond mere affection. She's besotted by her beautiful teacher and falls to pieces in lessons if questioned by von Bernborg. Finally, the teacher calls the pupil to her room and instead of discussing school matters, Manuela blurts out that she loves her and that she keeps thinking that when she leaves the school, von Bernborg will be kissing other girls instead of her. I love you so much, but you're so distant, she complains. There's an awful lot bubbling under in this scene, particularly from von Bernborg, who is both stern and playful. She admits to the child that she thinks about her often. This last remark seals the girl's fate. She's smitten. For the headmistress's birthday, the school puts on a performance of Friedrich Schiller's tragedy, Don Carlos. Manuela lands the lead role, and in her costume cuts a very handsome figure. You get the feeling with these girls that they're so hormonal that anyone in a doublet and hose is going to ignite passion. Manuela's performance gets a standing ovation, and she's on top of the world. At the after-party, she drinks too much of the alcoholic punch, there's a wonderful scene with all the girls dancing together and generally having a whale of a time before Manuela has to go and ruin it by declaring her love for Fräulein von Bernborg. The headmistress enters the room just in time to hear this passionate declaration before Manuela faints. With vehement anger, the head pronounces the girl's actions scandalous. Manuela wakes up with a hell of a hangover in the sick room and before she knows what's what, She's getting the most appalling earful from the head, who tells her that she'll be isolated from now on and no one will be allowed to speak to her. It's during this final passage of the film that we're presented with both of its core themes. Firstly, the life-crushing aspects of trying to raise a generation of girls as good Prussian mothers. And secondly, and perhaps this is the one that comes as a surprise to us now, an entreaty for a freedom to love in any way that comes naturally free love, in other words. If the film has a famous line, then it's the one uttered by Fräulein von Bernborg to the furious headmistress. What you call sin, I call the great spirit of love in all its forms. Don't let go of that line. We're going to come back to it several times on this journey. And so the film is reaching its dramatic end, Von Bernborg breaks it to Manuela that they must not be alone together again, and Manuela is heartbroken. Her only source of maternal, or even homoerotic love, another relationship we'll visit shortly, is over. 
She takes herself to the top of that huge staircase and looks down at the gloomy depths below. Meanwhile, her friends are beside themselves with worry. They search through corridors and empty classrooms for her. Her closest two buddies, Ilza and Edelgard, at the head of the search. Suddenly, they spot her at the top of the stairs, and all hell breaks loose, with girls screaming her name. Manuela is by now on the outside of the banister, in a kind of daze. While the girls scream in terror at what's about to happen, they rush to catch her at the last moment, pulling her back to safety over the railing. The headmistress, stalking the corridor, witnesses the near catastrophe. The girls glare defiantly at her as she makes her wobbly, diminished way past them and back to her room. The bugles sound just as they did at the beginning. Everything fades. The film ends. So there you go. That's the film I fell in love with. If you can track it down and watch it, I urge you to do so. But it's just the starting point, because now comes the story. Not every film has a story to tell, but this one has. And it starts in 1901 with the untimely death of a young German mother. The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece. Researched, written and presented by Bibi Berkey. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam Webber. It was directed by Mark Lingard and the original music was composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions.